When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Lord God, on this Christ the King Sunday, um, as we open these passages before us that teach you, teach us what kind of king you are, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes uh, to see you as king, to see you, Lord Jesus, as the one who rules and reigns even now, and to see you as the one who is worthy of our praise because you came and dwelt among us, that you took on flesh, that you took on death, and that is what makes you worthy. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome to St. Bart's. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, congratulations. You survived Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe some of you thrived. Maybe most of you survived. Um, it can be a tough week, and we're getting into that time of year where things just kind of compound. It's party after party, all leading up to Christmas and New Year's. And that's the way that the calendar of the world moves, but the calendar of the church moves in a different way. And this Sunday we call Christ the King Sunday, and it is actually the last Sunday of the church calendar. Next Sunday is New Year's, Advent. Why do we cap the year with this feast of Christ the King. Well, on one level, it sums up everything that the church calendar is about. It is built around the life of Christ, his coming into the world, his revelation of who he is to the nations in the season of Epiphany, his passion, his redemption of the world through his cross, burial, and resurrection. And all of that comes to its apex in the confession that Jesus is king that Jesus, it rules and reigns even now. So it, it gathers together the year in a particularly uh, vibrant way, but it also points forward uh, to the church year to come because the season of Advent really is the season of the church in all time because we are waiting. 
We are waiting for Christ the King to come again in the fullness of his glory and to set all things right. So the posture of Advent is the posture of the church. We wait with eager expectation. We pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Christ the King both gathers up the year and it points forward to the year to come. And of the feasts of the church, Christ the King is relatively new. It was instituted in the 20th century after World War I by Pope Pius XI. And what he saw is that in the ravages of war in World War One, is that people were hungry for strength and certainty. And in that hunger and that desire for certainty, they turned towards dictators and strong nationalistic type leaders for certainty and for strength. And he instituted this feast as a reminder that Christ is the King of Kings and that Christ, the ascended Lord, rules and reigns even now. And that's what this Sunday is about. Before there was Christ the King, this Sunday was called Stir Up Sunday. (laughs) That was the beginning of our prayer. Stir it up. Why do we need to stir it up? Because we forget this all the time. We forget that Jesus rules and even reigns now. And so we look for strength and for certainty in other leaders, in other institutions, in other pursuits of life. So as we open the scriptures together, I want to turn our eyes towards Jesus, who he is, and why it is that it's good news that he's the king. Because there's all sorts of people that you could put in charge, and it would not be very good news at all that they're in charge. But it is good news that Jesus is in charge, that he is the king who rules and reigns even now. And we have this passage before us, the passage of the sheep and the goats, and in the last few weeks, Jesus has been telling parables. If you'll remember them, the parable of the the ten virgins, which reminds us to pay attention, to be ready for when the bridegroom comes back. The parable of the talents last week, the reminder that this king has given us things to steward and to multiply in his kingdom that we're to pay attention, that we're to steward what God has given us. And we end the church calendar with these admonitions as a preparation for Advent that we would worship and serve Christ as King. And what I want to put before you this morning is that it is one thing to say that Christ is King and another thing entirely to trust him and to serve him as King. We have to trust his kingship. We have to serve him as King as we serve his kingdom. So the question that I put before us is, can we trust him? Is he trustworthy? And to answer that question, I want to answer another question. To to determine whether he is trustworthy, we have to see where our king is. Where do we find our king? At the beginning of the passage from Matthew 25, we see that the son of man, the king, is on his glorious throne. We find our king on a throne. This is the expected place to find kings. And in calling himself the son of man and speaking of him coming in glory, Jesus calls to mind a prophecy from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is conferred with all authority, all dominion, all power from the ancient of days. 
And Jesus draws that passage to mind by saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. In the book of Daniel, when Daniel sees this, he is terrified. And it is no wonder. He is in exile, and he has seen what human kings are capable of doing, what emperors do. One conferred with all power is a terrifying possibility. The famous quote, it is power that corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the Son of Man is given all power. There's a movie out this week that I wanted to see. It didn't happen. The Napoleon movie. I wanted to see it. There's a scene in the Napoleon movie, saw it in the preview, but there's a painting of this in the Louvre where Napoleon crowns himself. That's terrifying. A terrifying reality when a human being takes that power upon himself and says, I'm in charge. And if you know the history of Napoleon, it's not good for him to have all that power. He does not do good things with it. So it is not simply enough to know that our king has all authority. It is important. We have to know that he can actually do what he says that he will do, that he actually has the power to do it, that he's been given the authority to do it. We need a king with authority and power, with the ability to judge and to set things right. But the question remains, will he? Is he trustworthy? We cannot put our trust in simple raw power. We have to put our trust in a king who uses his power in a particular way. So when we first see the king, he is on the throne. But our other passage, our Old Testament passage, shows us the king in another place. Where do we find our king? We find our king amidst the people as the good shepherd. He's not just on the throne, he's with the people. Ezekiel 34, 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. He doesn't delegate this. He does it himself. I will seek out my people. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Where is our king? He is among the sheep. As the passage goes on to say, the Lord says, I will be the shepherd of my sheep. Not in an abstracted, distant way, but in the midst of his people in the midst of the sheep. So who is our king? Our king is the king who steps off his throne and moves towards us, comes into the midst of us. The king who is the shepherd in the midst of the people. So think of someone with a great amount of power. In our culture, we represent this in films and television by the CEO. Right, shows like Succession and others are about these powerful figures. And these are not figures that you find amongst their people. They are abstracted from the people. They're distant from the people. They make decisions with no concern for their people. <laughs> they want to exploit and get everything that they can from their people. And the reason that we're drawn to these stories is because we see that happen over and over and over and over again in history is that people get power and then they abstract themselves from the people. 
the first thing that people do is they get away from the people. But Jesus moves towards the people. That's what the incarnation is. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Where do we find our king? Among the sheep. His presence among us goes further still, though. He is not just on his throne, and he is not just among the people. Where do we find our king? We find him in the lowly of the earth, the wretched and the poor and the least and the lost. And that is the great twist of this story from the Gospel of Matthew. When you do these things to the least, the hungry, the thirsty, you do it to me. You serve the king by serving them. Where do we find our king? In the face of the wretched. This should surprise us. Jesus doesn't just move amidst the people. He completely identifies with them. Complete identification, complete solidarity with the lowly and the suffering. This is our king who took the form of a slave and emptied himself. That's what Paul says in Philippians. He has the name above every name because he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and died the death of the cross. His total, his solidarity with us is total. And this is not just a parlor trick where it appeared that he was with us. He's not a prince having some cosmic cosplays and having a day among the people. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that flesh suffered, and that flesh died. Who is our king? Our king is the king who steps off his throne and moves towards us. Our king is the king who is the shepherd in the midst of the people. Our king is a king who so identifies with his subject that service to his subjects is service to him. And not just the people who can do something for us, but the lowly and the least and the lost, the wretched of the earth. And when you serve the least of these, you serve him. And those who serve the king in this way, Jesus calls his sheep, and he calls the blessed of his father, who will get the inheritance of his kingdom. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of generosity and a kingdom of reciprocity. That God pours himself out on us, and then we take what he's given and we give it back to him and we give it back to others and it spreads throughout the world and that's how his kingdom comes into the world is through his generosity and our reciprocity. To take everything that he's given and to give it back. Freely you have received, now freely give. That is the economy of the kingdom. That is how things work. And this king wants to give us his inheritance. He wants to give us an inheritance because the Father desires, as one commentator puts it, to share with his creatures out of his freedom and generosity the superabundant life of the Trinity. He wants to share with his creatures out of his freedom and out of his generosity the superabundant life of the Trinity. His freedom. He did not have to create. And yet he does. His generosity, 
He doesn't just give us some things, he gives us everything because he gives us himself. His spirit dwells within us. Can we trust this king? Yes, because he withholds nothing from us. He gives us his very self. And this story from Matthew 25 reminds us that the inheritance of the kingdom is given to those who bless the son, who is himself hidden in the hungry, in the thirsty, in the sick, in the naked, in the imprisoned. When you fed them, you fed me, Jesus says. When you gave them something to drink, you gave me something to drink. When you clothed them, you clothed me. When you did this to them, you did this to me. Because he so identifies with the full range of human experience. He is the one who is enthroned, the son of man, the truly human one. He is the one we want to rule and reign because of his total identification with the full sweep of human experience that he takes on flesh, that he dwells among us, that he suffers, that he goes to the cross. His authority is absolute, and we can trust that absolute authority doesn't corrupt him because of his solidarity with us, that he was willing to go all the way to the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him of redeeming us. The other truth of this passage, and I, I don't believe it is a parable. He's giving us a prophetic vision of what is to come. He doesn't introduce it like a parable. He says, when the Son of Man comes, then. And here's the truth. We will give an account for our lives. We say it in the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And on what basis does he judge? Well, this passage tells us it might haunt us, it might scare us, it might ask us to answer some hard questions. But this vision of the separation of the sheep and the goats is a prophetic unveiling of the glorious Son of Man, and it is a reminder that we will give an account for how we've lived our lives. We don't like to talk about it. I can feel you pulling back from me. <laughs> but we have to lean into it. We have to lean into the reality that we will give an account. So the question I think that is worth answering is who is the one that will judge us and do we trust him? And are we willing to go seek and find him where he says he will be, which is with the wretched of the earth, the poor in spirit, who he calls blessed? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. That's actually good news. We know how to serve our king. How do we serve him? By sharing what he's given us through generosity of saying, I was hungry, I was thirsty, and he fed me. I know where to get bread. So we seek the king by lifting our eyes to his throne. That's what we do in worship but we also seek our king as we go out into the world rejoicing in the power of the spirit because he is among the least of these. And we get to go serve them and we get to go love them 
And if we reflect on our own stories, we've all had those moments where we were the least of these. And if you've been in the faith and the community of faith long enough, my hope is, is that you've been served. That someone gave you what you needed, what you were hungry for. So the question is, knowing that we will give an account, will we trust the king? It is a haunting story, and I think we should allow it to haunt us. And if we will allow it to haunt us, it will force us to ask fundamental questions about our relationship to this king. Do we not just acknowledge his authority as an abstraction, but live in the fullness of his authority in the world through the power of the Spirit? Will we seek the face of the king in the face of the least? Not among the high and the mighty, not on the seat of power, but among the lowly. Do we trust him who laid aside all he had, taking on flesh to dwell among us, pouring himself out for our sake, and so totally identifying with the least and the lowly that his solidarity with our human condition is absolute? That's the first question. Will we trust the king? The second question is, will we serve the king as we serve the poor and the least? Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Workers' Movement, said this, the mystery of the poor is this, that they are Jesus, and what you do for them, you do for him. It is the only way we have of knowing and believing in our love. When you love someone who can't give it back to you, that's how you know you believe in it. The mystery of poverty is that by sharing in it, making ourselves poor and giving to others, we increase our knowledge of and belief in love. That's the kingdom of reciprocity and generosity. As we've been loved, we love others. As we've been given, we give to others. But I think it's also important to say that Dorothy Day goes on to say, it would be foolish to pretend that it is always easy to remember this. It is not easy to remember this. We are tempted to put our trust in shows of power of people who crown themselves, who say, I have the answers, follow me. And we are certainly tempted to forget that we can find our king among the wretched of the earth. Dorothy Day said that her worship helped her do this in the world. That as she sought the face of the king in worship, by his spirit she learned to find the face of the king in the world. And she said without that connection, it was just activism. Not connected to the kingdom of God. Because out of the overflow of her worship of the king, she went to go find the king in the world. That's so important. Dave talked about this a few weeks ago. We can get stirred up by causes, and that's good. But are we saturated in prayer and worship? Do we know the voice of the shepherd so that when we're in the midst of the world, we can hear him and follow him and obey him? So it is imperative that as we go into the world that we have spent time with our king in prayer and meditation and in worship in Christian community so that we can better learn to discern his presence in the world and so that 
that kingdom of reciprocity can continue. That as we freely receive, we freely give. As we freely receive, we freely give into the world. And that we can go forth trusting in the king who says, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Lord God, um, these kinds of passages, I know, can be scary. They can be used um, to stir up uh, an, a kind of anxiety that is not healthy. And yet, um, it is important to remember, Lord, that we will give an account. So I pray, Lord, that as we worship you and as we see you as our king, we could go into the world to serve you among the least and the lost. And we thank you, Lord, that though we were poor in spirit, you have made us rich. Help us, Lord, as we freely have received to freely give. I ask this in Jesus' name, Christ our King. Amen.